Doug South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DougSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here your host, Rocky LaFleur. Everybody on? Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. No yelling on the butt. Josh Webb. Sorry I had a fight in the middle of your butt. I'm part of And Jake LaTondres. I'm bad news. Also starring Rob Crew. I bet this guy's into the woods a hundred bucks. And Bradley Ramsey. Bill Martin inside. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFour in the Duckside Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Man, sitting on the other end of the Mississippi River from me, the Heffinator. I was going to say Roberto. But it's called the Heffinator. Rob, your pictures, along with the podcast we recorded last week, dude, it's gone nuts. I ne- listen. I, I don't mean I don't mean this in a bad way. I knew your podcast because of your. I mean, you were one of the leaders on the old MS Ducks board. Uh, but, geez, man, you're running neck and neck with fools. Well. You know, it's kind of like Mississippi is number one in everything and all the bad things. So I've never met Mr. Falls, but I'm glad he's number one. <laughs> I bet you never in your life imagined being on the same track as Jeff Falls. Never really even thought about it, you know. Uh, but everybody's got a story. And, and, and like you say, you got you got his side, you got her side, and then you got the truth. So. I'm sure all of us, even my stories, if you ask some of the people I talk, they would probably have a different story. And then somewhere about in the middle would be what actually happened. So uh, when I tell my stories, like I told you, I try to write down everything on my my big cases um, so I won't forget because over time I forget the little small details. And then I mix the detail in from another story that I think happened, but it didn't really happen. So... uh, Anyway, I'm sure he's a he's a nice fellow, but I've never met him. Well, along with the podcast last week that you recorded with me, man, you posted those pictures of where y'all been flying out to spots. I guess right there on the the edge of the Gulf, wearing the freaking fish out. Yes, it's been pretty amazing, and it's all kind of a new thing to me. Um, I've guided a lot of duck and dove hunts, but Never been a fishing guide, and um, I got hired down here at Southern Seaplane at Bell Chase. And uh, I just, I don't know why I put that. I've been a game warden for 14 years, and I put that on my resume, thinking, yeah, maybe they'll see. I, I kept a job for more than six months. Maybe that'll help me. And ended up getting a job because I had been a game warden. And uh, I said, well, that's first. So they said, we wanted an outdoorsman. And, Somebody that hunted and fished, and you said you've guided before, and that's what we're looking for. So I've been down here about eight months, and I've been flying pipeline, <clears throat> flying some charters, flying some air tours, and uh, 
finally we got into some fishing about two weeks ago and went down to Timbalier Island south of uh, Coastry. And it was just a, it was a bad day. The wind was too high and, and the water was cloudy and we didn't do anything. And um, so we, we went out uh, to the chandeliers last Friday with a group of guys from Texas, 13 guys and a cameraman. And um, the cameraman was supposed to be putting together one of those uh, those short films for the Yeti Film Festival. And um, I'm guessing it's one of those Yeti Presents films that, that were so cool to watch. But anyway, he had a drone out there flying over while we were fishing and uh, filming. And, and uh, those guys really warm out. Um, all of them from Austin, Corpus Christi, had, a, had one guy. Um, named Geronimo. He's a fishing guide out of Corpus Christi and and um it was really neat to watch those guys fish and uh it was just crazy. We went back to the same spot the next day, did it again, went back there yesterday, did it again and uh since I put those pictures on the internet, not not just on your page but everywhere else, we've been booking fishing trips so I got fishing trips Thursday, Friday, and Saturday this week. So it's just turning on, and it's been good. But the Mississippi River has been so muddy. The marsh has been muddy, and uh, the water out there is clear. So I guess that's where the fish are. Limits 25. How, how long do they have to be? 12-inch minimum length limit on trout in Louisiana. Um, and uh, Louisiana is one of the more liberal so it's a neighboring state. You can keep 25 fish in Texas. I think you can keep five trout. And uh, I want to say those trout have to be 15 inches, 15 to 25 is the only thing you can keep in Texas. And Mississippi is, uh, man, I never work saltwater stuff, but I think Mississippi, the length limit is 13 inches, and you can keep 15 fish. So 25 in Louisiana. It looks like a lot of fun. How, how long? How long do you does it take to fly out there? It's about forty five minute flight from Bell Chase, um, between sixty fifty five or sixty five miles, depending on which island we go to. So it's about a thirty five to forty five minute flight, uh, flight, depending on the wind, and we try to stay on the water for uh, for five hours at least. Um, and uh, that gives everybody enough time to catch a high tide or tide fall and, you know, find the fish and get into the fish. But yesterday we were pretty much done in three hours. And five hours doesn't seem like a long time, but my back's hurting after five hours walking around in the water. And, uh, hard bottom? Yeah, it's hard, sandy bottom, uh, really good walking. And uh, we're walking in, you know, about side of waist deep water. And, uh, once you find the fish, it doesn't take long. It's like watching a bunch of blue herons around a hole. Once you see everybody standing around and a bunch of splashing, well, that's where they are, you know. Um, but it's a bunch of boats out there, too, from Mississippi and Louisiana. And, and uh, everybody seems to be getting along, so it's a lot of fun. And you don't have to – does Game Board want to come out of you while you're out there? <laughs> it's hard to suppress the Game Warden once you've done it for a while, but I'm not the game warden anymore, so all I can do is tell my people what the law is, and uh, grown men make their own decisions, you know. But um, as a guide, just like when we guided the 
you know, you're guiding ducks and you're sitting there right with your with your folks and watching every bird that gets shot and uh you got a little more control over it than you do with fishing when you you hadn't seen what somebody's really caught for five hours and then sort of come with the stringer. But but uh most everybody is is law abiding and they're out there having a good time and we took off yesterday and we got off the water and I was joking with these guys from Baton Rouge. And I uh, said, well, man, we've been doing real good on the fish uh, over the weekend. I said, I hope they're there today. And the guy, he was looking out the window of the other plane at the marsh, and he said, man, I really don't care if we don't catch a fish. This is already awesome. So the flight out there is is half the truth. Catching fish makes up the other half, you know. <laughs> you know, when I think about flying, because you and I flew a lot there probably let's see 2000 probably 2000 2002 three right in there we flew a lot scouting for ducks mm-hmm. and you know i don't know if you were pretending that you were the department of wildlife back then trying to get duck counts from the north part of the delta all the way to the south but we flew a lot of miles <laughs> looking for ducks yeah and you know, I always, whenever you start talking about flying, I think about one moment when we were flying. I want to see if you remember this. Now, I don't even know if we've talked about this in 20 years or Was it 18 years. What? No, no we, we were flying, and it just so happened, uh, I guess we were getting close back to, to the lodge or somewhere in between the lodge and your strip there at your house. Mm-hmm. And we. We were probably at a thousand feet, thousand fifteen hundred feet, and just so happened, look out the window, and there's two mallards right outside the window. I remember that. And the reason that I bring this up, it's you know when you start talking about something that far in the past, you remember bits and pieces of it. Some things you you remember every detail of it. And I still remember sitting in that seat next to you and said, I poked you and said, hey, look at those two ducks right out the window. And just as I said that, the mallard hen, I kid you not, she totally turned her head around and looked at us like she was looking over her shoulder. (laughs) She turned around, that airplane was just there. And she saw it, and it's just like a cartoon. They just banked to the right, banked out of the sky and down. Yeah, I remember you could see the ring, that white ring on that Drake's neck. That's how close we were. And it, that happens a lot. You know, you hear guys having bird strikes. And, and uh, I actually hit a deer one time at night. But uh, somebody asked me, was I in the air? And I said, yeah, yeah. It was Santa Claus's, Santa Claus's deer. I hit one in the air. No, it was on the ground. But, uh... <laughs> You know, you're up there with the birds, and uh, buzzards and pelicans are pretty numerous down here in Louisiana. The white pelicans in the in the wintertime were pretty bad, and you get into a flock of them before you realize it because we're flying along looking at pipelines on the ground. All of a sudden, you see one pelican out of the corner of your eye, and you look up, and you're looking at 30 up. And uh, so it wouldn't be real good to hit one of those. But I tell you, most all birds will dive turn try to get out of your way but the one bird that will not move absolutely will not move will look at you and give you the evil eye as you pass by him is a bald eagle and i really 
I just they're the baddest bird in the sky. I've heard other pilots say the same thing. And there's no other bird that hunts the bald eagles, so what do they have to be afraid of, you know? And I've I've looked at them and go, ooh, that's an eagle. And before you know it, I mean, you're right up on them. And they're doing their little circle while they're hunting, and they just kind of look at you when you go by like, you know, you want some of me, bro? <laughs> <laughs> they will not move at all. I said, Lord, they've let the, being the national symbol really go to their head. <laughs> oh. Well, lots of responses last week, especially on the, the, the duck hunting story uh, from when you were working in Quitman County. A lot of people found that very interesting. You know, I don't know if I've ever even asked you, in all of your time there, I mean, especially being in Humphreys County, you probably didn't have any, but turkey cases, that that seems to be, you hear more and more uh, arrest and ticket writing, turkey hunting, turkey baiting. Did you ever get, I don't even know if I've ever even asked you that. Yeah, I had a few. I don't think I had any when I was in Quitman County. Um, there were some turkeys on O'Keefe WMA, but uh, now when I was in Humphreys County, I got to work Delta National Forest a lot, which is under about six feet of water right now. So really good turkey habitat down there the last couple of years. I don't, I don't guess the turkeys have even been able to have a nest down there the last couple of years. And You know, there's some people that don't want to put these pumps in because they say they're bad for the wetlands and the wildlife. Well, they probably need to go survey a few turkeys because uh, turkeys don't really do well nesting in trees. And, um, but we made a few cases, Delta National, and I got to go over to Atala County my good friend Jason Blaylock. And uh, I tell you what, that man is like a billy goat walking up and down those hills. He will walk you to death, and he makes a bunch of turkey cases. Those guys over in the hills, too. And uh, most of it is baiting. Most of the turkey cases are hunting over bait. Um, now, this year, they've got the, what they call it, the game check, where you've got a, it's mandatory, you've got to call in and report your turkey. And I've heard a lot of people against that and against having to, tag your turkey or tag and report your deer and you go you check a bunch of these other states and they all have to tag their stuff especially out west you know you can't move a deer unless that tag is around the antler or around the leg and uh so to those people like me you don't have to tag anything I'm like nope well how do you know how many deer you kill well we don't and and uh i just see it as a management tool but a lot of people see it as a, an encroachment to their privacy, I guess. And, you know, in my opinion is, unless you're a game hog, what, what do you have against reporting what you've killed? Uh, that's the way I see it. And a lot of people don't see it that way, and they think it was government overreach. But I think it's a good idea. I, I'm going to say that I, I hadn't looked in a while. I was kind of keeping up with it there for a while. Because there was a lot of turkeys up here around me getting killed in Lafayette and Pontotoc counties, but I'm going to bet that there were a lot of turkeys reported the last day of the season. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like bucks. Uh, 
I call it beers, bucks, and turkeys. You stop somebody who's been drinking. Well, how many have you had today, sir? I've only had a couple. How many deer have you killed this year? How many bucks have you killed this year? I've killed two. How many gobblers killed? Well, I haven't killed two. Nobody's ever limited out, you know, or had more than a couple of beers. So <laughs> very few people will tell you they get that third gobbler or that third buck for the year. Uh, but, yeah, that, that that game check, I think they call it, is, was new for this year. And uh, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, but I think that was hard to get past the legislature. I think they had to compromise on a couple of things, on a couple of the feeding things to get that. And, uh, you know, people just don't, uh, I guess their constituents, for some reason, there's more of them saying they don't want reporting than there are saying they do. But how do you manage a game population by guessing? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you effectively manage something when you don't have a real number. You got you got called out a lot on. What I, I'm gonna ask you this one: What's the craziest spotlighting deal you ever worked? I know you got to have a good spotlighting story. I I well okay I was in the Delta and we didn't have and still don't have the deer hunting that the hill counties do. So I didn't get that many spotlighting cases, but up in Quitman County they had some of the some of the oldest CRP, some of the oldest tree replantings uh in the Delta and they were probably ten years ahead of Humphreys County as far as um land being put back into trees. So we had a good bit of deer hunting up there and uh but it was it was just a drop in the bucket compared to the deer hunting that they have in Lafayette County or Panola County or or uh Batala County or some of those counties where that's just about all people do is when deer season shows up, you know, they run dogs, they deer hunt, they don't have the duck hunting and the um the Oxbow Lake fishing and and that kind of stuff that the Delta does. The Delta was more of a variety in my opinion than the Hill counties were, but but uh I got a few few headlighting calls and I remember this one time they were, I think it was back in 2007 or 2006, the winter. Um, they were having a lot of headlighting calls around Oxford and uh, the, that that greater area down towards um, Enid Lake and up up to Sardis Lake and over towards Panola County. We were having a lot of headlighting calls. And we had, uh, the department had rented an airplane for a few hours um to look for dove fields and stuff like that, mainly dove fields. And we had some hours left over. And they said, you know what? Um one of the captains up there said, Let's 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 try to get up and see if we can't find any headlighters. And uh, they said, We we've done that before with uh I don't know if it was uh Sheriff's Department had a helicopter or something like that and they went up at night and said, Man, you you can see folks shining light, you know. So we uh we get in a little 172 over at Oxford. You know where the airport is over there, not far from the football field. And Marion Pearson and I, and we jumped in that airplane, and Mary knew the county pretty well. And, I mean, we hadn't been in the air 30 minutes, and we see a light. 
and uh, somebody shining a light. Well, we had five or six guys on the ground, and we could fly and see something and outrun our guys on the ground, and by the time they got there, the folks had stopped shining or, or, or whatever. And uh, we saw this one truck, and uh, it was about, I think it was about 2,000 feet, and there was a big, big tower over there. So I was watching that tower, red blinking light that night. And we were circling this one truck, and he would pull into a field and kind of just shine his headlights out across the field, and he'd come back out. And he'd pull into another field, and he'd back up a little. He, he would back out, and then he'd just pull forward. And you could see his lights going across these little fields on these gravel roads in the hills. And um, we marked them on a GPS, and we had some guys coming that way and said, look, they, you know, they're probably 30 minutes away in their trucks. And uh, so we, we left, and we went towards Panola County and over towards the Equipment County and came back, and we started went back to that GPS location <laughs> and uh, found the truck again. I guess it was the same truck. And um, here's this truck. He's pulling in these fields, shining his lights. Coming back out, sometimes he's back out. You can see the reverse lights come on. I was up to about three thousand feet by then, and uh, so we got the guys headed that way. And and Marion kind of knew where the road, what the road names were over there. I didn't have a clue. And uh, finally, we called old Pat Watts on the radio. He said, "Pat, turn on your blue lights so we can see where you are." If you turn on his blue lights, and there's Pat down there below us. Said Pat, go up to that next road and take a left, and that guy's gonna be down there about half a mile. So Pat goes up, and he's got his blue lights off. He goes down the road, he stops the truck, and they get the guy out, and uh, they said, "Hey, look, you know, um, you were uh, you were shining these fields." He said, "No, no, I wasn't. I was just." And we talked to them later, and they told us this. He said, "No, I, I just I was turning around. I went down this road and had to turn around and come back out." They said, okay, well, you got any guns in the truck? And he said, no, sir, I don't have any guns. And one of them walked up there, and it was a 30 6 and a muzzle loader laying on the seat. And I said, well, man, it's like I didn't have any guns. I said, well, these guns are loaded? He said, no, no, they're not loaded. They pulled the bolt back on 30 6 and it was around in there, and they, the muzzle loader was loaded and had a cap on the on the nipple. And they said, oh, so these guns you don't have that aren't loaded, you know, uh, here they are in the truck. He said, look, honest, I wasn't headlighting. I promise you I wasn't. We're circling around over, you know. And by the time we, we kind of came in a little bit lower, you know, flew right over the top of them, and they, they asked the guy, they said, you hear that airplane? He said, yeah. He said, that's us. He said, the guy just hung his head and looked down at the road. And so they arrested him, took him down to the jail, and uh, had his truck truck towed, I, I guess. And so Marion and I, we flew off and we went down towards Enid Lake and saw a guy spotlighting down there and and uh, the guy had cab lights on his truck and we got some guys on him and they stopped him and the guy didn't have a gun but he had definitely been shining and back then it wasn't illegal to just shine you know people go out and look at deer and have fun but um we came back to Oxford and landed and, I mean we hadn't been up in the air three hours total but the first truck we saw was about thirty minutes into the flight and uh. We we tied the plane down, got it secured. I went up to the jail since I was the I was the one, or Mary and I were that actually saw what was happening. Uh, I went up there and filled out the tickets on the guy, 
and um, you know, headlining is a pretty big deal. It's a minimum two thousand dollar fine and a maximum oh. five thousand. And uh, I don't remember what else we had charged him with, but it was it was well over two thousand dollars worth of worth of fines. And uh, I'm expecting the guy to probably get a lawyer, come to court, argue the fact that. You know, I didn't actually see him doing anything because I was up in the airplane or whatever. And uh, court day never came. So I called the justice court and I said, hey, when do we have court on this guy? And they said, oh, no. They said, he just came in and paid his tickets. And I said, what? He said, yeah, he just pled guilty and paid his tickets. So that's how effective an airplane is in law enforcement, especially wildlife stuff. We, we can see more violations than we can get guys on. So that was one of the. One of the best headlighting cases I had, and I think they they told me that that was the first headlight case from an airplane in the state. So, pretty effective way to do business in law enforcement. Did you ever fly with them doing bird counts? Did you ever pilot that? No, I didn't. Uh, like on the duck count? Yeah. No, um, that was a. I think that was kind of a grant deal between Delta Wildlife and the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, um, Delta Wildlife over in Stoneville. And um, they were, they used, um, they were using a friend of mine, Jim Risher had an airplane, and uh, they were flying with, in his plane with different pilots doing that kind of stuff. So I never got to do any of that. The, the same Jim Risher that used to be on MS Ducks that he, he passed about a year ago? Yeah, Jim's had the blood trailing dogs. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people call him to come find their deer. And Jim was, uh, I don't know anybody who didn't like being around Jim. He, uh, I think Jim was 36, 35 years old, had over 10,000 hours flying, had flown um, corporate jets, uh, had an aerobatic plane, was an ag pilot, flew all over the place. He'd fly out to Colorado and go elk hunting with some friends of his, flew out there in his 180. And, and uh, yeah, he he uh, he hit a tree one day, spraying a field, killed him. Did he rep- did he fly off the strip there, Morgan City? I guess I guess he took over Johnny's plane after That's I left. Right. Yeah, he flew it. He flew it that one. Mister Johnny Trusty used to fly. Okay. Hmm. 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 You know, Ramsey brought up one. I, I guess you had talked to him about uh, um, one of the last time that y'all y'all were visiting with each, each other. And Ramsey said, "Man, you need to ask him about the paddlefish." Yeah, yeah, old paddlefish, man. Uh, when I started working with the Department of Wildlife, I didn't even know what a paddlefish was, and. Uh, uh, everybody calls a paddlefish a spoonbill or a spoonbill catfish, and actually it's not a catfish at all. Um, but it's got that slick skin that doesn't have scales, so I think that's why they, you know, it's got that nickname pa- uh, spoonbill catfish. But the paddlefish has a big, long bill sticking out the front and a big forked tail, and uh, it's got a spinal cord in it. Doesn't have uh, doesn't have bones like other fish. It's got a big spinal cord, uh, like a shark. So it's a really unique fish. And, and we have a lot of them in our Delta rivers, um, the Tallahatchie, the Coldwater, Yazoo, Sunflower, and in, in, a, in a lot of lakes, Moon Lake, and different places. And 
when I first started working at the Department of Wildlife, I can remember pulling up to a guy that was on a on the lake in Quitman County between Crowder and, and Lambert, and uh, this guy had a bunch of fish. He was, I think he was cleaning a bunch of paddle fish, and uh, he had got them to the bank, had a big flat bottom river boat, you know, cutting his fish open, and I just got to talking to him, hey, you know, what's going on? Well, I'm catching paddle fish, and, you know, we, we get the eggs out of them, and, and that's pretty much it. I took this license and, and uh, went on about my way. Well, as, as uh, the years went on, I was working for the Department of Wildlife. We met with some of our guys who, uh, they weren't regular patrol officers like I was. They dealt a little more serious cases, and they, they had a meeting with us, and they said, hey, guys, we got a problem. And uh, they started telling us about the paddlefish industry. And uh, I thought it was very interesting. And um, they said, you know, we got guys out here that are catching paddlefish, and they're making three to $500 a fish. And I said, you got to be kidding. And, uh, you know, you take a commercial fisherman that's making a dollar a pound on a catfish, a good flathead, or 50 cents, 50, 60 cents a pound on selling buffalo, and it's hard work. A commercial fishermen is one of the hardest working people I know. They they get up before daylight, they go running nets in all kind of weather, um, dangerous water conditions, and they come home, and they then they clean fish, and then they have to go sell them. You know, they have to sell them to a wholesaler, or, or uh, well, they yeah, you've probably seen guys with deep freezers in the back of their truck with a little sign sitting up on the side of the road selling catfish. I used to buy catfish from a man from, from Cahoma County up there in uh, Marks, um, but it's not an easy way to make a living. And, um, you know, I, I, have, I have a lot of respect for him, but you take a guy that's making a dollar a pound on a catfish and he has to sit on the side of the road and pedal, and uh, you tell him he can make $300 on one paddle fish, well, that that brings out a lot of a lot of commercial fishermen out of woodwork, and then it brings out the greedy side of people. And uh, so... We were always one step behind the, the paddle fishermen every time we make a new regulation because we figured out, well, this was happening last year, man. And we we changed the regulations up a little bit. Well, they they'd find a way around that one, you know. So we were constantly changing the regulations, and and finally they started a little paddle fish task force, and they asked me what I headed up. It was me and about four or five other guys across the delta, and we would just float around, go all the way to. Tunica Cutoff, down to Vicksburg, uh, Mississippi River, Moon Lake, Tallahatchie, Coldwater, uh, just all of these little places that, you know, most of the other guys had winterized their boats and put them up for the winter, and uh, we were out there um, <laughs> going down the Sunflower River at night with night vision on, getting dropped off, waiting on the bank, uh, sitting there freezing to death, waiting on somebody to come run a net, and um, it was really fun. But what was driving that thing, and when I tell people this, they, they, they're they just amazed. What was driving that thing was a international uh, caviar trade. And when, when communism fell back in Russia, uh, it was just free-for-all on a black and Caspian Sea or sturgeon, uh, sturgeon fishing. And that's where the caviar came from, you know, sturgeon roe. And right. You think all the fancy people eating eating caviar and how many dollars a bite that is. Well, they fished that out. There was no government regulation on it then. It was just every man for himself. And, uh, 
they pretty much wiped out the sturgeon population of black and Caspian Sea. And so they found out the next best thing was um, roe or eggs from paddlefish from the United States. And um, uh, so that that became a big market. And uh, I remember joking with the guys, uh, the undercover guys. I said, so what you're telling me is if uh, I'm out there and uh, uh, I'm checking nets and old dude named Vladimir's out there running his nets, I better be on alert. And they started laughing, you know, and they said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, Boris and Vladimir out there running nets, I had Russians on my hands, but I never did run up on a Boris or a Vladimir. Uh, it was uh, good old guys from Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana. And uh, it was the strangest thing. We would get guys from Illinois and Missouri down here fishing. And uh, they knew they could come down here and catch paddlefish, and it was pretty much wide open. So by the time I, I kind of got out of being involved with the paddlefish, man, we had a regulation book that was pages thick. And everybody who wanted to apply for a paddlefish permit, which was $1,000 for one permit, uh, for the season, you had to, it was mandatory, you had to be at this regulation meeting where all the fishermen and the law enforcement and the biologists sat around and talked to each other and, hey, this is what it's going to be this year. These are going to be the open zones. These are the new regulations. You know, uh, here's the book. We would go through PowerPoint. And they would ask me questions. And I say, hey, you know, here's where we're having problems. And uh, so these guys get them to decide, did they want to spend $1,000 on the license or not? And uh, um, if they didn't come to that meeting, they didn't even get their name. Uh, they weren't eligible to even get the license. So we, it was highly regulated. And uh, still, every year, we make simply class one violations uh, or cases that are uh, $2,000 $5,000 uh, tickets, you know. And um, we... We uh we had guys from Arkansas coming over, and then they 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 made it where you had to be a resident of Mississippi to get a paddlefish harvester permit, and uh, you, there were paddlefish processors and buyers, and then you had paddlefish helpers, and it was all kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I had a lot of fun doing that, and and guys would call me, hey man, we're up here on this lake, you know, we're up here uh, on Moon Lake or whatever, and uh. We would all get together and work together. Worked that Mississippi River a lot. Uh, it was one of those places where nobody expected the game more than to be. And um, I had a lot of fun. Saw a lot of sunrises and sunsets on the Mississippi River. But I had one case. This guy was fishing Four Mile in Humphreys County. You know, Four Mile, it runs up under the highway, goes behind Primo's old camp, and turns into Wasp Lake down there. Yeah. Um, how long is four mile? The open water part may be a mile long, a mile and a half long, and three hundred yards wide, maybe. Uh, yeah, Probably you know so. what's old old river channel is what it is, and uh, we discovered that there were all kinds of paddlefish up in Four Mile Lake. Really? And, yeah. So. I had I had made during the summertime when I was bored. I had taken the WMA equipment and carved out. There was a little dirt boat ramp, and you couldn't get your you couldn't get a boat in there. It was so muddy, and I kind of scooped that little spot and dug out a hole where the boats could launch and haul some gravel in there and made a little boat ramp. And so 
people would use that to go fishing. And I pulled in there one day, and there's a guy. He was down there, had his boat in the water, and it was he and his brother. And um, um, I talked to him, and I told him, I said, "Hey, look, fellas, you know, you gotta, you gotta have this." This one guy had his permit, but I don't think his brother had a harvester permit or a processor or something. At the time, you you could take the fish out of the water, the legal fish, but you couldn't put a knife to them. You couldn't cut them. So the only thing you could do was they had these big turkey baster needles, like turkey injector, you know. Um, you could stick those into the fish, and you could pull it back, and... You could see if they had eggs or not, and if it didn't, well, you just put the fish back in the water. Well, if it did and it was legal size, you could keep it, but you never, you never had to mutilate the fish. And that was one of the big complaints we had had over the years, where people were going by these lakes, like Wolf Lake, different places. It was dead paddlefish floating all up and down the lake with their stomachs cut open, and all these guys were doing was catching every fish they caught. They were cutting it wide open to see if it had eggs. Well, it might be a male fish or a little female fish. and I mean, so regardless of whether they used them or not for the eggs, every fish was dying out there. And uh, we made it where you couldn't. You could not cut that fish on the water. So I talked to them about their processor permit and WMA permit, and didn't write them any tickets. And I said, look, y'all just go get your WMA permit if you're going to use this rent. I rode all around. I rode up past your old house, uh, Mossy Lake, three miles, six miles. Rode around Lost Lake. Later in the afternoon, for some reason, I just decided to come back in there to that boat ramp on four miles. And uh, when I pulled up to the truck, this guy I had checked that morning was sitting there in his boat, had his boat nosed up on the bank. And it was about 30, 35 paddlefish in that boat. And he Whoa. was, yeah, when I pulled up, because we didn't have a, a limit at that at that time. You could catch with how many ever you could catch. They had to just be meet the length limit and all that stuff. So I pulled up to him, and I could see him picking fish up out of the floor of the boat. And uh, he was measuring them. He had to measure them on flat board. And from the corner of their eye to the fork of their tail had to be, I think it was 36 inches or 35 inches long at that time. And it had to be that long before they could even be kept. But the regulation stated that as soon as he came out of the net, he had to be measured. And if he was legal and you were going to keep him or her, then a tag had to be put in it immediately. And uh, these tags look like little wristbands. You see them on uh, um, guys that have to tag otters and bobcats, these little snap them together, and the only way you can get them undone is to cut them. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Each one has a serial number on it. MDWFB paddlefish tag. And uh, none of them had tags. And, and I was watching him measure them. And some fish he was putting in the back of the boat. And uh, some fish he's putting, he started putting tags in when I pulled up. And uh, I got on the phone real quick, and I called Dennis Ricky down in the front of the wild. I said, Dennis, am I wrong? Or? Don't these fish have to be taken as soon as they come out of the net if he's going to keep them? And so I jumped out of the truck, and I said, hold up, fella. Stop. Don't touch another fish. And uh, he said, what's going on? And I said, well, you hadn't measured any of these fish. You hadn't tagged any of these fish. He said, well, that's what I'm doing right now. And uh, I said, what about all the fish in the back of the boat? And he said, well, they're too short. I said, well, they're dead. And uh, I said, that's the whole point of having this law is so the fish that aren't big enough to keep 
don't get wasted. And I said, you've ridden around in your boat until you finish checking all your nets. Well, you know, if you let them go, they swim right back in the net. And uh, I said, well, what, what good does it do? Are we protecting this fish that's too short to keep by letting him die in the boat and then throwing him back in the lake? I mean, really, you know. And, and the guy knew he was wrong. And uh, so I started counting fish, and he had, he had 27, I think it was, 27 fish in that boat that were untagged. And 19 of them were below the length limit. So that would have been 19 Class 1 tickets for short fish and 27 Class 1 uh, tickets for untagged fish. And I said, you know, that's really a lot of paperwork. I really don't want to write was that uh, 45 tickets or, or whatever that is. Uh, and um, I said, I really don't want to write that many tickets. <laughs> but I called uh, my lieutenant colonel, and I said, what I need to do? And he said, just write him one ticket for all the short fish and one ticket for the untagged fish. So that's what I did, and I seized all his fish, took pictures of everything, seized all his fish, put him under arrest, and had a deputy come pick him up, took him to the jail, fill out all his paperwork and all that stuff. Well, he bonded out, I guess, the next day. And we had a court date. I think the court date was pretty quick. It was like a week and a half. A week and a half passes, and um, I go to court. I'm fully expecting this guy to show up because I know he's got a lawyer. I already knew he had a lawyer. Fully expecting him to show up, you know, and uh, he doesn't show up. So we had all the other cases, all the traffic tickets, all of the, the deputies tickets, the trespassing cases, everything waiting for this guy to show up. And it's like an hour after he's supposed to be there, two hours, whatever. And he's not there. And the judge said, let's go ahead and hear this case. And so I told her my story. And uh, he wasn't there to tell his story. And I said, judge, you know, this guy hadn't even shown up for court. And I said, but here's the deal. I wrote him these two tickets. And uh, instead of writing him 40-something tickets, and uh, it was going to be like a $92,000 fine if he got charged with minimum for each, for each violation. And I, said, Judge, I said, can you charge him the max on each one of these two tickets, $5,000? And she said, yes, I will. So he had $10,000 plus court costs uh, in, in fines. And I got on the phone. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I'm talking to uh, Whit Reed. Uh, who I think now is the chief of police at Clarksdale, but I was talking to Reed, uh, Witt, who was game warden in Cahoma County at the time. And I say, uh, uh, Witt, man, this guy, uh, he show up for court. He said, he's on Moon Lake fishing. And I said, what? He said, he's on Moon Lake right now fishing. And Moon Lake had a, a little short season. They were opening up, and they could only run the nets during the daytime, and there was game wardens and bologas on the lake, and, they were trying to get some of the paddlefish, um, or trying to allow the paddlefish harvest out of Moon Lake, which, which is pretty much landlocked unless you get really high water year like this year. And uh, I said, man, uh, <clears throat> I need him here. He's got a he's got a bench warrant on him from the judge. He didn't show up today, and he's been found guilty. So Witt and I got together and uh, went and brought him down to Drew. I met him at Drew. And... Uh, the guy got in my truck, and uh, 
had handcuffs on him and everything. And I said, man, what in the world? I said, why did you come to court today? He said, well, my lawyer was supposed to call up there or some, some kind of excuse, you know. And uh, found out his lawyer did call after court, and they told her, said, well, he's been found guilty, you know. So I took him to Humphreys County, put him back in jail. And uh, I don't remember how, how long he had to stay, they took, whatever. He paid his $10,000 in fines, and they let him out of jail. And they immediately appealed the case, appealed it from justice court to circuit court. So I think it took uh, several months for it to ever get to circuit court because they, they don't have circuit court every week like they do justice court, you know. And right. We, uh, his lawyer has subpoenaed just about everybody in our Jackson office from the chief to the um, assistant director. I mean, just subpoenaed all these different people that didn't have anything to do with the case. They subpoenaed them. felt like it was out of spite to me, just making us all show up and have to sit there. So we're all sitting there. Court gets started. The judge asked me to get up and give my testimony. So I sat on the witness stand. I start telling my side of the story. His lawyer jumps up and says, uh, hold on just a minute, Judge, I move we dismiss this case. And the judge says, well, on what ground? And she said, well, I've got the paperwork here from the court, and these are photocopies of the citations. They're not the original citations, so I move we dismiss this case. She said, well, that's not any reason to dismiss the case. And, oh, yes, ma'am, it is. It says right here in the law, the original citations shall be included in the case file, and these are photocopies. She said, well, the court clerks, all they did was just make a copy of it, and that's what they gave you for your paperwork. No, ma'am, we need to dismiss this case. And I hadn't been talking two minutes, and I'm just sitting there like, I can't believe this is happening, you know. Uh, this is the most rinky-dink stuff I've ever heard of. And the judge says, no, I'm not dismissing this case because there's photocopies of the tickets he got in your file. And uh, they went back and forth for five or ten minutes, and uh, finally the judge says, well, I'm going to move that we go to a re go into recess on this thing, and I'm going to research it a little further, and uh, uh, we'll, uh, court will come back in session, you know, at a later time. So we all left. The judge got up and walked out of the courtroom, and I said, I, had, I cannot believe that just happened, you know. And, um, so it's about three months later. We have court again. We come back in there, and uh, everybody sits down, and the judge says, uh, you know, court's now back in session. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research, looking through a lot of case files and law, and there's no reason for me to dismiss this case because photocopies of the citations were in the file and not the real copy. But I am dismissing this case because uh, if we hear the trial, if we hear everything now, it'll be double jeopardy. And we just looked at each other, and uh, the county prosecutor said, well, excuse me, Your Honor, but how can this be double jeopardy? She said, well, we can't hear this case again. It'll be double jeopardy. He said, well, Your Honor, we hadn't heard the case yet. We got like two minutes into the officer's testimony, but he hadn't been tried for anything, and we're having another trial over this thing. She said, no, double jeopardy, case dismissed. <laughs> we all just looked in there, looked at each other, and I said, man, you know, this guy had 40-something fish uh, or, or, or 27 illegal fish 
didn't show up for court, found guilty, paid his fine, appealed it, and now he's walking out of here, scot free, you know. And uh, it just blew my mind. You know, that's what people have on these for. Um, you could be caught red-handed, but still find a little technicality and get out of it. And uh, don't get the wrong. double jeopardy deal. Double jeopardy. I, you you're either you're either been found innocent or guilty. You could have been found innocent, and you can't be tried again on the same crime. You could have been found right. guilty, served your time, and you couldn't be, you know, tried for the same crime again. Yeah. Well, I'm not a lawyer, man, and uh, I don't know all the technical details, but just that uh, that blew my mind. That was one of the biggest paddlefish cases I had. But I've had a, a lot of other paddlefish cases where that didn't happen. And uh, um, caught the same guy twice, about three years apart, about two miles, uh, locations about two miles apart on Mississippi River in Baltimore County. And uh, um, just, we, we made a lot of cases. So that paddlefish is pretty serious stuff. And, and the thing about it is, why, why is it so serious on paddlefish? Well, you know, it's just another fish. Well, like I said, anytime you put that much money on wildlife, whether it be guiding, commercial, or, uh, or you know, you're you're actually selling the wildlife um, for profit. You know, that's why they stopped the feather trade back in the was the 1920s, 1900s, early 1900s. Everybody had <clears throat> feather pillows and feather hats, and women wore rosette spoonbill pink feathers in their hats, and it was a feather symbol. These birds were getting slaughtered for the feathers, and uh, that's why they they stopped. You know, you can't you can't do that anymore. And it was kind of the same deal on the paddlefish. That's why we had why we had so much regulation. But the the neat thing about paddlefish was our biologists were tagging paddlefish, putting little tags on them, and uh, kind of like almost kind of like bird bands, but little metal or plastic tags. And there was a fish that was tagged in Moon Lake in Tahoma County that was caught by a sport fisherman on a on rod and reel. Somewhere in Oklahoma, I, I don't know if it's the Red River or uh, which river it was. I don't think it was the Red. I think it was uh, maybe the Missouri River. And we we looked at it on the map, and one of the biologists, I think Dennis, uh, wrote an article about it. The only way that comes to Denton, what you say? Arkansas River. Was it the Arkansas River? Might Might have been. Uh, the only way that fish could have gotten from Moon Lake, you know, Moon Lake's right beside the Mississippi River, but that fish would have either had to walk, got out of the lake, walk across Highway 1, climb the levee, and jumped in the river, which didn't happen, or swim out through the Yazoo Pass. You know, I don't know if you know where the Yazoo Pass is, but if you're going up Highway 61, Right before the turn to go to Helena, Arkansas, there's a sign on the highway. I think the sign says Yazoo Pass Expedition. Talk about where the where the Yankees in the Civil War blew the levee, flooded the Delta. Then they sailed their gunboats <clears throat> down the Yazoo Pass down to Greenwood, and they got stopped at Fort Pemberton. Uh, that's the Yazoo Pass. That fish would have had to swim from there down the Coldwater, the Tallahatchie, around the backside of Greenwood where the Tallahatchie turns into the Yazoo, all the way past Bells on the Yazoo City, 
out into the Mississippi River at Vicksburg, take it right, swim all the way up to whatever river it was. If it was the Arkansas River, he'd had to come all the way back up uh, past Rosedale and all under there. Take it left. Um, go all the way to Oklahoma and get caught. So these fish that we have locally are highly migratory, and it's just very fascinating. That, you know, a fish here may be swimming up river uh, several hundred miles away to spawn. And um, so the states were trying to work together on this paddlefish stuff. It was very fascinating, uh, fascinating work. Hey, a couple of things I want to talk about. I want, I want to go one more round with you next week. All right. I want you to think on this, okay? You know, you, you brought up – because one thing, one of the things we hadn't talked about is dove hunting. Yeah. Frog hunting. I want you to – all right, so remember those two. Because you work dove hunting a lot, and it's something that we all do as wing shooters is dove hunt. But I, th I think some of the frog hunting stuff, the big part of the Delta. Uh, I wanted to. You, you brought up night vision uh, today. Mm -hmm. I, want, I want to talk about you using that as a as an officer. Okay. That's got to be. I want. That's got to be pretty interesting. You know, we 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 make up these grandioso stories of game wardens and uh, using night vision, and let us into that world next week a little bit. You don't mind. All right. And yeah, then I want you to listen. I want you to do one thing for me. This is your assignment. Get your pencil and your notebook. I want you to think back to the moment when you slapped your head and you were like, holy moly, how could that just happen? Walking out of court. I want you to tell a couple of those stories. Some of them. Biggest cases, not biggest cases, but cases that you just knew were going to be convicted, and you're like, what in the crap is going on? What What is this judge doing? You know, right. kind of like yeah. what we talked about today with the paddlefish, because I know that you had a lot of moments in court where you spent your whole day at a court, you know, courtroom, and only to find your case dismissed. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be thinking about that. And I want to, if we have time one day, I would like to talk about some things because everybody's planting their dove fields and their duck holes uh, right now. Well, maybe not in the Delta because everybody's underwater. But everybody's getting ready now for duck season six months down the road, you know? And a lot of things that are being done right now are going to give them problems down the road uh, with baiting or manipulation. Or stuff like that, and um, y'all were talking about, you and Ramsey were talking about having a uh, cooler full of ducks at the duck camp and only one person at the camp. You know, I ran up on that several times, uh, show up at the camp, ducks laying on the table, and one guy at the camp, I mean, there's a bunch of ducks laying on the table in the back. You know, it'd be cold weather. And uh, just stuff like that, that uh, if you can think of some questions, or maybe some of the guys that commented after the podcast last week had good questions, and um, I would just give them my viewpoint and how we worked it. Um, so I think it, it might could help some of your, some of the people that listen to this podcast. It might could save you some heartache down the road. 
and I and I I know that you have a couple more duck hunting stories. So I, you know, we we may take a couple more weeks. I don't know, depending on your time, because I know you're real busy right now. But well, I got a bunch of stories that, that that I got to wait a few years before I tell. So uh, <clears throat> maybe maybe we can do a podcast in about ten years, and I can tell some more stories. <laughs> All right, but that's your assignment for next week. All right, what was it? I forgot. Dove hunting, frog hunting, night vision, things that make you go, hmm, slapping your <laughs> head moments in court. Yeah. And duck hunting, a couple more. Because I know you had a – I remember one that you, you've told of. I think it was Sharky County. I don't know if you can tell that one or not. Duck hunting case. Okay. Remember that one, Sharky Esquinny County? Yeah, there's a bunch of them down there. You're gonna have to refresh my memory off off uh off recording. Hey, and another thing. All right, so you got those five. What was it like working with the feds? The, the few okay. times that you did, I want to talk. That that's a lot. That that so we're probably in for a couple more episodes. I want to, because let me in. We want to go into that world with you. What it was like. All right. Sounds good. So, anyway, we'll jump back into it next week. Like I said, at your convenience, you just let me know. Rob, be careful down there fishing. I appreciate you being here. We want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckStuff.com.